0: This is SideByte, episode 50 for June 12th, 2012. everyone, you're listening to Sci-By, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast that comes out every Wednesday morning over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. What are we talking about this week?
1: This week, we're going to take a look at estimating dinosaur weight, pollution data, exoplanets, mosquitoes, the Johnson Space Center, Io, updates on Venus transit and neutrinos, spacecraft updates. As always, take a tea back into history and up in the sky this week.
0: Wow, packed episode. We got a big yes. dock we're going to plow through tonight and. Uh, right on through it. And, you know, we're going to invade a little dinosaur privacy when we go look at the dino weights. Nothing is sacred, folks. It's our first <laughs> news story. All right, tell me about tell me about the dinos and uh, and how we know that they're a bunch of fatties now.
1: Oh, poor dinos! No. <laughs> oh, okay. It's not like that. No.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, so yeah, we we've talked about it before. You know, all these kind of you look back at all these bones, and you're trying to figure out how the muscles are fitting on there, what kind of weight they have based uh-huh. on you know the bones, but it's all been kind of hand waving stuff. They've kind of now they've got a new way to estimate it. Um, yeah. I mean, in the past, they've done everything from, one of the ways they used to do it was having the skeleton and have like an artist like make a little clay model based on sort of what it would be and like take the volume of that and guesstimate, okay, this is going to be the weight of this animal.
0: Right, so, right, right. all
1: kind of very hand wavy. Yeah. You know, some of it less hand wavy, but what they've done now is they've gone through and they've gone through uh, a whole bunch of modern day mammals like reindeer, polar bears, giraffes, elephants. They've gone through and they've, measured, uh, you know, lasers, but with the bones to the amount of skin wrapped around those skeletons. Okay. So it's like how far from the bone to the outside of the limb. And it is every time it was pretty much exactly 21% more body mass than the minimal skeleton skin and bone volume wrap. Okay. So what they're doing is they're taking the bones and then they can extrapolate from that say, okay, the... You know, the skin is this far away from the bone. And so bas- basing it off all those other mammals, because they were all pretty much the same.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm pulling the, that part. Okay. So we're using so, our we're using the animals we do have good data on to kind of extrapolate. Yeah. Well, if, if they have this, then the dinosaurs might have this as well.
1: Yeah. So the previous estimates of the giant uh, brachiosaur, you know, it's the big dinosaur, the long neck. Yeah. Those kind of varied anywhere from you know, estimates as high as 80 tons. But applying this new approach, it jumps down to just 23 tons.
0: Ooh, it's quite the so, diet.
1: Yeah, quite the diet that these guys are going on. <laughs> so so it does require, I mean, it requires a minimal amount of interventions. I mean, there's no, you know, you don't have to wait for an artist to draw it up. You pretty much just have the skeleton, plug it in, and it spits out, you know, the size of the dinosaur. Now, it does mean you have to have a great majority of the skeleton. mm because you really need to know what the skeleton looks like and sort of just to estimate how far out the skin and the muscles go. Right. But, I mean, in general, the estimates of these, of dinosaur weights have been falling since the early 60s. So, you know, we, we make guesstimates of these giant lumbering beasts. And as the decades have gone on, we realize that, no, nope, they were a better diet than that. Nope, a little better diet than that. Nope. They keep getting slimmer.
0: They're getting less and less cool, in a way. I Because I always picture dinosaurs as these ginormous monsters, but... It, as They're
1: still ginormous.
0: Yeah, okay. any
1: 20- over 20 tons. That's, is that's
0: now, but when we're doing sidebite yeah. next year, you're going to come over here and we're going to sit down. You're going to say, you know what? Look, there's uh, these dinosaurs here, Chris, by the way, it turns out even smaller than we thought before. And every year, Heather, you're going to chip there away at no these dinosaurs. going to
1: be that. Okay. They're not going to end up like okay. some Halloween little skeleton creature. No,
0: we know that's not the case, right? Because we have their massive skeletal remains and, yeah. you know.
1: Now, what actually it may jump back up just a little. Because none of the creatures they did the, you know, the estimates on, reindeer, polar bears, you know, all those kind of things, they don't have the massive tails that the dinosaurs do.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's more
1: like, you know, alligators, crocodiles. Yeah. So that's kind of their new, um, their next step is they're going to go to those kind of creatures and laser calibrate off of them. So kind of get a better idea of the overall system Maybe the the tail and the hind legs, you know, have to be bulked up a whole bunch, you know, in order to do that because that's how it is. That's how it is in the long-tailed creatures.
0: How how ridiculous do you suppose it is that, uh, 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 I mean, if they could go back and and they can go get the skeletal structures of these of these dinosaurs, how ridiculous <laughs> of a possibility would it be for the dinosaurs? Where, you know, they don't have a a great skeletal uh, uh, picture. You know, I'm thinking of, like, the one we talked about, I think it was just last week, where they kind of made some assumptions in a few spots, like in the neck Mm -hmm. particularly. Couldn't they do something like that in some sort of computer model and then sort of say, assuming that the the skeletal structure is essentially like this, which it would kind of need to be for everything to fit together, we can kind of guesstimate its overall size based on these new parameters. You don't have to have the whole thing, right?
1: Well, no, you can guesstimate and also say, you know, it's... You know, the dinosaurs related to it. So it's like the cousin to this species, dinosaur, is kind of laid out like this. Now, this has just a little bit of a different bone structure. Yeah. You know, it has this kind of a frill on its head versus that kind of a frill. But you can kind of get an idea of what the skeleton's going to look like. You know, you can estimate the, the hip size, the you know, the femur size, those kind of things. And you say, okay, well, this is the, you know, the estimate now based off these new results – so it, it's all that kind of um, cyclical thing where you have a basic system that can estimate these type of things, you know. So you estimate, you know, the the skin and the weight, and then from there you can go in and say, okay, well, if there's this much room for muscle, uh-huh. then this is how the muscles were probably laid out. This is how the tendons had to be. in kind of work from one part to another, right? And you can say, okay, this is this. You know, the most complete skeletons we have, this is how they are. Now, these other kind of dinosaurs are similar here or similar there. And then kind of use that to fill in the blanks, you know, to get an estimate. Right. Yeah. You know, so it's, you know, uh, those photos where, you know, there may be a chunk missing. Yeah. Now, if it's of a, of a tree and you have a different kind of a tree, they're similar. You can kind of, you know, plug it in and it doesn't look too bad. You know, if you have a, a rose bush and you're trying to stick in daisies, uh, not quite as much. So you have to find s- similar <laughs> things to kind of fill in the hole. Yeah. to give you an estimate, a better estimate of what the complete picture shows.
0: Very interesting. And uh, it's I guess it's to be expected as as our techniques get better that we will, yeah. you know, sort of refine previous findings that we kind of thought were pretty dead on.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, they start this if you look at the like the early sketches of how they put the skeletons together, it's kind of funny and weird. And for the longest time, they all had the dragging tails. You know, the, dragging, the yeah. tails were just kind of dragging along behind the body. And yeah. then they kind of figured, oh, wait. Nope, they're all pretty much swinging straight out. So there's a lot of, you know, steps that these things go through. They go, okay, this is how they are set up. Now we estimate, you know, these kind of things based off this data. So as we get better, as you said, if we get better, Ways to do these, then we can get better ideas of what was actually there.
0: Well, certainly. Well, interesting, and uh, and and another great dinosaur update. We always seem to find some (laughs) really. Heather, you got you have an eye on the dinosaur scene, don't you?
1: Yes. (laughs) Well, i i was I was to space as one of my brothers was to dinosaurs.
0: Ah, yeah, yeah. So I went through a bit of a dinosaur phase as a kid, and uh, I kind of grew out of it. But I had a friend that. Also stayed in it, and I kind of, yeah. so I kind of know what you mean. Yeah. Well, a
1: lot of those things, like people, you go through it as a kid. You go through the the space, the dinosaurs, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm.
0: the dirt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, my my boy Dylan right now is huge into dinosaurs, but he's huge, huge oh. he's huge into everything. But well, um, you know, uh, the land before time, you know, things like that.
1: oh Well, any
0: other thoughts on that story?
1: No, we'll just keep an eye out into the past and the future that you know studies the past.
0: Yeah. All right. Well then. Uh, Let's pause here just for a brief moment, and I have a great announcement. Made it on the Linux Action Show this week, and then uh, our first episode of Coder Coder Radio shipped this Tuesday morning. So, uh, if uh, you are interested in software development, uh, like myself, I'm a very, I'm very much a beginner. Uh, if uh, you are interested in more of the uh, more, I would say advanced category things like. Uh, The actual business behind running your own software development company, maybe being a uh, contract developer, getting jobs and things like that. There's all kinds of interesting angles um, we're going to take on the show. Our first episode covered beginner tools, gateways to programming, things to get you started, some of the things to consider, and uh, also what what you kind of need to keep in mind if you ever want to be featured or show up in an app store. So go check out Coder Radio over at Jupiter Broadcasting. It's a brand new show. It just launched. We're very excited. There you go awesome yeah and uh that's hosted by uh, uh michael dominic and then uh, co-hosted by myself a new guy on the network who uh, uh at some point I, we, we gotta get people to like meet people and say hi to each other and stuff that way people know who each other are and whatnot you know what yeah. i'm saying
1: the giant Jupiter broadcasting uh, roundtable. Right. I think of it Hi, as like, uh, yeah. See,
0: exactly. You got Jupiter broadcasting as the planet, and then each show is like a moon orbiting Jupiter broadcasting with its, <laughs> you know, with its uh, with its own uh, unique characteristics. All right, Heather. Yeah. Well, then why don't okay. we move right on to the news bite? Now, uh, one of the things that I think a lot of people remember from the Olympics was the pollution issue in uh, Beijing. So yes. I see you have a Chinese pollution data story here. So I'm kind of curious about this.
1: Yep. Well, the China has come out and said that foreign embassies are going to be, that it is illegal for them to issue their own quality air readings, that only Chi- the Chinese government can release anything about the pollution levels.
0: Huh, I don't like the way that sounds, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah, they've they decided it's related to the public interest. And so that is only allowed to be used on the government. So they have their own ways of measuring it. Now, it's the quality from China. They've said it's, you know, good. You know, and all the embassies from the U.S. say, wow, off the chart, bad. So it's interesting in the fact that they, it was, the U.S. embassy was actually sending out these data on Twitter, a Twitter account, and it was so followed in China that they were actually, like, getting their data from that instead. Hmm. And so they went up to the government, and they're like, okay, um, something's really funny here. You say B, they say F minus minus.
0: Wow. Is that so, kind of a difference,
1: huh? Yeah, well, on that scale, you know. Yeah. Not specifically, yeah. but. So they based their, you know, it depended on the size of the particles. So they said only 10 micrometers or larger. Now they're kind of saying, okay, now we're going to change the way we measure it, so it'll include the smaller particles. So, and that, you know, uh, other countries say that that is the majority of the the pollution. So, they're they're changing their ways about how they're going to measure it hmm. and send it out, but they're still going to stick by the line of only they, you know, could get it that. Uh, the US embassy could do it, but for only US citizens. And that's kind of what the embassy said is that we're producing our data for our own people.
0: Did so, they, kind of a. Did the Chinese a, government, I mean, they said for public interest. Did they yeah. say what that interest was? Because that doesn't seem like but public interest to me.
1: Yeah. This is definitely a story that was kind of uh, a bit of politics in this science.
0: It does seem like it. It seems like maybe there is a little bit of, uh, hey, look at China, look at them. A little bit, like uh, now that are not necessarily true, but it isn't it convenient to paint them as really bad polluters because it lets some, it kind of lets sort of well, our, are. our, I know, but it lets sort of our own guilt about it off the hook a little bit because we're like, well, I mean, yeah, we need to clean up our act, but China's real bad.
1: Well, I was more taking a, a look at it as that China says it's the public interest because
0: they don't want them to know how bad it really is.
1: Yeah, they no. decide that they're going to announce, they're going to dictate they, to the people yeah. everything yeah. about everything. And so there's kind of some I feel like they've got a little bit of pressure to up the science a little bit to kind of make it a little bit better, a little bit more accurate. Yeah, so that I, maybe the, I fear that, the, that it's more about see that.
0: I fear it's more about controlling the message. You know, and and, and Trying to
1: controlling the message to the people. Yeah, because I mean, oh, they yes. they
0: do have a serious pollution problem, and and they they do get a bad rap for it, and they want to clean that. They want to clean that up. Yeah. Um. And so it's,
1: it's direct. They want to control the message going in and going out. Yeah. But anywhere where there's a bit of a change in policy to kind of increase the accuracy of scientific data, I like that. Yeah. Or whatever. Whatever view you have on it, or you know, the China or the Chinese government or pollution, that increasing, you know, the the accuracy of something.
0: And I'm sure, like this. I'm sure the Chinese government will be working closely with the U.S. embassy to verify that their data matches up, so that way they can, uh, you know, have a third party validation. Um. <laughs> oh no
1: um no. you know i stand on the the science side of this <laughs> issue but even peeking over the fins to, to politics i i don't think so i think the politics are sad in that chris i yeah, think I you know. make politics sad
0: i know I, you're right yeah boy thank good thank goodness we don't have to do politic bites politics do bite
1: <laughs> no actually that it's might as be close as, like i wanted to get but was- bites.
0: so it might be a good show it's a good name at least uh, uh, all right. Well, sure. should we talk about uh, some exoplanet imposters?
1: Yes. <laughs> what so, is this? We've, so we've talked about the Kepler Space Telescope before. You know, it measures keeping an eye on a chunk of the sky. It sees the brightness level of stars going up and down. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's measuring the planets. But what a new study suggests is that as much as one in three of those may not really be a planet if it's a giant planet opening. Close to a star. So we've got out of the, you know, over 2,000 planets, you know, say 46 of them are categorized as large exoplanets orbiting close to their star. Mm -hmm. Now, 11 of those have already, you know, were already known. The team confirmed nine more. Now, that what of left means you have 13 unknown things, two brown dwarfs, 11 members of binary stars. So they started like really analyzing this because it was looking and they're saying, okay, you know what? Giant planets orbiting really close to a star are are still really strange. You know, they're everything the data that we have, you know, based on everything that's coming in says that's kind of an outlier. Mm. So what they started doing is they started looking more closely at those. So they used the same you know, the same techniques that are or everything's verified by. They look at the star and how it uh, red shifts, uh-huh. blue shifts, or how it wobbles. Uh-huh. So they went through and they said, "Okay, we're going to analyze all of the giant planets orbiting stars really close in." So they looked at those really closely, and then they went through and said, "Okay, out of all of those, about a third of them are not planets." Really. Yeah, there was, you know, they're like, are they like
0: Pluto type planets? Is that kind of?
1: No, it's the binary stars. Say it's a, you know, a giant, uh, bright planet and then a much dimmer planet. So if it passes in front, it's still blocking some of the light of the brighter star. So you have a smaller star, pardon me, a smaller star in front of a larger
0: one. Right.
1: You know, if you have a big floodlight, A little LED flashlight, if you pass that in front, it's going to block out more of the floodlight. And and if you're observing it from
0: far away, that would look like dimming.
1: Yeah, it would look like dimming just a little bit. Oh, it
0: is dimming. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Because it actually is. And another one of those could be is failed brown dwarf stars, Mm. which are small stars that can't really, kind of can't get the ignition going. They can't start the internal the same way that normal stars do. Right. So they're not planets because they are very different process in which they're made, and which, how they're comp- comprised. So they're just these brown dwarfs, these binary stars. And then 13 kind of not quite knowing what's going on there. But even, I mean, in these specific cases, even if a third of them are false positives, that is still way better than any of the other estimates.
0: Right, so the team right.
1: still said, you know what, a third of them are, are false positives? Hey, that's still great. That's great.
0: Yeah, that's great. It is great, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Really? I mean, these are exotic objects. They're they're not going to be everywhere. So They're freaking they said, planets. Yeah, well, giant planets orbiting really close to a star. Mm-hmm. So, like, okay, so we thought they were weird. We're picking a few extra up that we, you know, think might be there. That's fine. But we're still aiming and saying, hey, all of this stuff is, you know, possible. I mean, so they're, they're, I mean, what they're doing is they're looking and they're seeing that. And then we can go through and say, okay, start tracking down the list and saying, all right, we need to identify all of these, make sure they are actually what we think they are. And, and this doesn't affect any of the smaller planets or the longer orbiting planets. You know, so anything with a, a wider orbit or anything smaller has nothing to do with that. So those are still as accurate as we think they are. okay so it's just just in this one specific case that the study has said, okay, maybe with these exotic, huge, closely orbiting stars, planets, I'm going to keep switching that up. <laughs> this very specific case, then their estimates are high. But even so, you know it's still it's still pretty much the best way to identify them.
0: yeah. And it's it's always a process of discovery and then iterating on on that discovery and finding out okay well maybe you know we got to pull this back a little bit but yeah like you said in the end it's still a great discovery oh yeah all right should we move on to mosquitoes yes tell me uh, tell me about this because I got to tell you I hate mosquitoes not quite as much as spiders though.
1: No. Well, no. Mosquitoes just make you kind of cringe and itch your arm. You're like, oh, ow. Oh, yeah. Um, Arm must itch because the word mosquito has come out.
0: Yeah. Ugh.
1: So, mosquitoes in the rain. So, when a raindrop hits a mosquito, that's similar to, like, a human getting hit by a bus.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Mosquito survives. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so uh, you've got a slow-mo water droplet getting dropped. On- I love science. So Somebody yes. sitting there with a water droplet and harassing mosquitoes just to find yes. out what happens with a slow-mo camera.
1: Yeah, well, it was funny. Like, the whole process of getting this done, they're trying to repeat, you know, rain hitting mosquito. Yeah. So what they started doing is they started sending a spray, you know, hitting droplets down from, like, the sure. third story of a building. They're like, yeah, worst game of darts ever.
0: Right. Oh, my gosh, totally.
1: So well, then they had to figure out, you know, put a specific spray nozzle on, you know, some water, mist it into a container that has mosquitoes, really fast frame rate of picture. And then you can, you know, you can analyze what's going on. So what's actually happening is that the water droplet doesn't really have time or doesn't really transfer any of the momentum to the insect, to the little mosquitoes. Hmm. So instead of like hitting it, they're just kind of moving the mosquito out of the way.
0: Yeah, they're not bashing
1: into it. They're just kind of sweeping it to the side, like, move.
0: And it also is here in the video that the hairy surface increases the, like, sort of the effect of the drop just falling. Wow.
1: Yes. So it's the way they're made up. I mean, the little hairs are made to kind of help just kind of swoosh it to the side. So it's just kind of dancing around them.
0: <laughs> this is actually... In some way, because I hate mosquitoes, this is, this is kind of fun to watch, just these mosquitoes getting the crap get knocked out of them. water. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, wah Take ha, that ha.
0: stupid mosquito.
1: <laughs> yep. So, yeah, the only drawback for them is if they get, if they don't get, you know, they're flying, and so the raindrop hits it, and it just kind of moves them to the side, so it interrupts their path of flight. Yeah. But if they're hit just right, they're kind of stuck under the water droplet. Yeah. Then it can drop them, and it can give them an acceleration of, like, one to 300 times Earth's gravity. Ooh. So then, then it depends on if they can get out from underneath the raindrop before they hit the ground. So if uh-huh, yeah. they've, they've got to kind of tai chi it away from there. they got
0: to slip out. And it's weird the way it bounces off of them. It kind of lets them just slip out from underneath it if they could kind of get around it, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, because mesquite, how did they fly in the rain? Because rain is really
0: big. They, 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 they get knocked around like crazy, and then they just try to get out of it, right?
1: yeah they just get knocked around and then they come find us, and they you know,
0: yeah,
1: try to be ordinary mosquitoes but what's what the science gets out of this in addition to learning why we can't kill mosquitoes with rain, unfortunately, right. is uh designing swarms of tiny robots
0: Oh Heather.
1: yes, robots <laughs> you can you can you can design these tiny things and be like, okay, now we can study. The dynamics, you know, on something really small scale. So as we're scaling down, we can be like, okay, this is how they're happy with the rain. So you can kind of look and be like, okay, this is how they're affected. This is what makes them let the rain not smash them, kind of let them, like the insects, like the mosquitoes, just kind of move them to the side. So it's all kind of that kind of a study. Hmm. We may not be down to that small of a robot still, but as we shrink. Right. The smaller and smaller, smaller, you know, little bugged bugs and such.
0: Then hey, we, you know, I I I I hate the idea of swarm of tiny robots, but at the same time, learn from nature because if nature's figured out how to do it, yep, replicate that.
1: Yep. Well, there, we've seen a lot of that. We saw a robot, an underwater robot, uh, I think a month or two ago, and it was mimicking a jellyfish.
0: There's also an underwater robot in the movie Terminator.
1: I see.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, any other thoughts on that story, Heather?
1: Oh, Skynet is not allowed in our robots
0: right, or no, science. Right. But if it does happen, you'll hear about it on Side All right. Well, let's move on to a very classic two byte news. What? Well, up? Up? Uh, up? Now. Uh-huh. <laughs> Bite news on Bite, All right, Heather. What do we have in the uh, two bite news?
1: Okay, the Johnson Space Center down in Florida is actually going to start
0: tours. Awesome.
1: Yes. So starting on Friday, the June fifteenth, there's going to be a limited number of daily tours available of the of the control center.
0: Is it like be- a? Is it like a? Hey, come check out what we did when America was awesome tour? Is that kind of what it is? Yeah.
1: Is <laughs> This is just the, yeah, kind of, the mm-hmm. the iconic, you know, room where 152 launches right. from Apollo to the shuttle. They've all been there. You know, they have a regular admission tour, and then you can pay extra to go into those. I've seen at the Kennedy Space Center in Houston, they had available to tour, occasionally you can tour one of those mission control centers, like the uh, the old one. They've got the new one that they built. Uh, for the newer shuttle program, and they had mm. an older one too. So they kind of had two of these. And I remember getting to go through that and just kind of standing in there and being like, This is where the action happened. That is where they stood and said failure is not an option. This is where they pounded their heads trying to figure out this or that. And it was, for that case, it was very, it was very awesome for me to be able to do that. Yeah. So for anyone that can go and do, go see that if they're interested in space exploration, it's still you can see it as kind of a downer, like look how awesome we used to be, but you can also see it as wow, This is where this and this happened.
0: Well, yeah, it's a very oh,
1: tangible yeah. feeling of this is where, you know, you're standing where something happened. You're looking out of the window right. of where they looked out. And you see, a, gonna you, be... you see
0: all of the resources they had there. You kind of see how real it was. I yeah. Get it. I get it. Yeah. yeah. And
1: they're going to have tours towns. the uh, vertical, uh um, the vehicle assembly building. The really tall building that you can see the, the shuttle, you know, rolling oh, yeah. out of. Yeah. You know, where they put those together. They've got tours for that occasionally. So, all these very iconic places. It gives a very tangible feel to go see them.
0: Very cool. I would love to do that. I really okay, would yes. love to do that. It's only $25 to get in. But it would cost me a lot more to get there.
1: Yeah. Let's That's start. why I was like, I remember... I mean, Houston was a two-hour drive away for me, but you know, it was a drive. I could do, and i could go there, and I could. I could do sidebite
0: on the road. I could do sidebite on the
1: road. A little sidebite on the yeah, road yeah, and and beat at the uh, Johnson Space Center. <laughs> yeah,
0: totally right. And then do a sidebite down there, and then uh, I could also do really. I could do Coda Radio from the road too. You know, oh. no camera needed for that. So yeah, something to think about. Hmm, hmm. Oh. Sidebite, maybe sidebite from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Probably not. Yes. Probably now
1: not. all we need is uh, NASA to uh, host us.
0: Now you know, there you go. There. <laughs> that is thinking. Get NASA to pay for it. There we oh, go. Man.
1: They, they can't afford a shuttle program. They've sure got to be able to afford us. All so. that
0: money they're saving. Yeah, all, all they have active money.
1: Negative money. Right. Why not spend a little extra?
0: Well, Heather, it's no secret that uh, I'm a fan of Jupiter. Yes. And I'm also a fan of Jupiter's moons. I see you've got a story in here that might appeal to just that kind of person.
1: Yes. Jupiter's moon Io is the volcanic moon. So we've always oh, yeah. seen, you know, the, you know, it's all these volcanoes and we're trying to, you know, why is it so active? And we've said in the past, it's because of, it's so close to Jupiter. It's kind of needing the planet, sort of like Plato. It's keeping it warm like that. Yeah. Except now that we've had, now we've had a map, we've laid out all the different locations of the volcanoes. And that's not matching up to what oh, dang tidal it. heating would do. <laughs> so now we've got this distribution of heat flow that we see based on these volcanoes. Mm. And it's not really matching up to the model that we have. And, you know, the depths of it, the locations of it. The the main thermal emissions are about 40 degrees east of where we thought they would be. Huh. So the degrees. heat's coming from... You know, the depths, the shallows. So there's a lot of different places where the heat is coming from and how we're kind of mapping out where the, essentially, IO lava is. Wow. So we're trying to figure out exactly what the process is because, obviously, our model needs some tweaking now.
0: I mean, it Uh, doesn't have to be completely wrong, but it probably suggests there's some sort of internal...
1: Yeah, I mean, the the tidal heating definitely has something to do with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's there. We know, you know, we can... The physics says there is this much energy going into it. Oh, now, interesting! We, Further, th-
0: they say here in this article, the study found that uh, that of the known active volcanoes, only about sixty percent can be accounted for the overall uh, heat that's emitted from Io. So, forty percent of Io's heat coming from some sort of mystery source.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so not only is our model going to have to be a little bit tweaked to figure out where where the extra stuff is coming from. But it makes sense. If there is an extra 40% hanging around, we don't know where it is. We're not quite online for the tidal heating. So there's a lot of things going on. You're like, okay, it, it's a volcano, moon, it's getting needed, it's fine. Well, there's some more going on there. So there's a lot of these models. We've mm-hmm. talked about them all the time from dinosaurs to space. That we, you know, we have the base model and we get more data and we're like, huh.
0: Gotta adjust.
1: Eraser to this part. Eraser to that part. Let's tweak this. Right. So it's just, it's always that pattern. It's trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, sometimes you'll get more data and you're like, oh, that's what's answering this question. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes you get more data and you're like, huh, that asks like five more questions. So it's interesting. its I saw this and I thought it was, you know, it was so cool that it was... There's obviously so much of this heat and so much going on more than what we thought was the only thing there.
0: Yeah. And it makes you wonder if uh set down a base right there, use thermal heating. Yeah. Get some power generation going, you're good to go. Good to go.
1: If if you have like, you know, you don't mind sitting next to a whole bunch of volcanoes.
0: Oh, right.
1: Yeah, you're going to get thermal heating, sure. Yeah. Right up into the point where the little red yeah. Red light goes flash, flash.
0: Yeah. Okay, okay. Bye, bye. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. Well, Maybe you know. that won't work. Maybe there's a yeah. No, that's probably not. Good. There's there's a trade off there. <laughs> yeah. You know you know what, Heather, give and take. Bye. Give. Give and yeah. take. I mean, I wanted I wanted to go out and explore the solar system, but yeah. apparently you wanted to.
1: Space, space is dangerous. Yeah. Hey, so you know what? Space is dangerous.
0: It's time to uh, level up. A few of our stories from previous. We've got some updates here, don't we?
1: We do. Oh, neutrinos! How they come and back and like a yep, like a boomerang. The story keeps coming
0: back. Yeah, they definitely do, don't they?
1: Yes. So it was back in October that they researchers at CERN said, "Oh my gosh, neutrinos travel faster than the speed of light by a tiny little bit." 0.0025 0.0025
0: percent faster right and we were like what wow you were skeptical yeah, and then oh yeah
1: was, i had major skeptical pants on yep, and it was yep. all over the news and yep
0: yep and oh, then i no. was like i was like okay i'm going with you and then we had stories that said okay turns out it was true
1: yeah and, then it was you know coming back and they said oh no it the the data's is repeating it wasn't just you know this test it right. was it was still doing the same thing so i kind of bagged off the skeptical just a little right You're like, wow
0: <laughs> confirmation that's incredible
1: yeah, confirmation that, that that's that's positive. And then they came back and, you know, said, oh, um, there's totally a cable here that was loose and can account for those seconds. Um,
0: yeah. Isn't that what they said last time? Didn't they blame it on a cable at first last time?
1: Yes. But now what's happened is they've had five different teams independently verify that Neutrinos using the same kind of technique at various locations and at that location saying, all right five different teams say neutrinos travel just on the speed of light
0: huh well
1: so they' they've made their you know all for the particle detectors at the same location all said neutrino speed consistent with the speed of light you know all of this data has been officially kind of announced and there's all sorts of teams that are coming together and say we have verified that those results were bad.
0: So Einstein was right.
1: Einstein was right. Now, one thing that I did notice in one of the stories is that the the whole team thought this thing besmirched the the reputation of the whole collaboration. Wow. That in March, two of the elected leaders uh, lost a vote of no confidence and they have resigned their 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 positions.
0: Wow. Well, I mean it is kind of a big public embarrassment.
1: Yeah. Essentially the teams were like, um, guys, you publish this way too soon. Yeah. You know, we needed time to go into the community and, you know, reassess this data, you know, maybe ask another team to look at it before you actually published anything. Something of this magnitude, you know, it's very tempting to to publish, to get, you know, the eye to you, the eye to your team, to your, your, to your location, all that kind of stuff. But you do run the risk of this kind of thing where it's, you know, all the news organizations come together and blast it out and then it comes back later and you're like, oh, um, him uh, cough cough yeah. totally wrong. the
0: thing is is it makes such a good headline everybody ran with it so of course it's so out there.
1: oh it's yeah and but that
0: does mean that we don't have to break our brains over trying to figure out how that works
1: yes one less thing to break our brains over Yeah. yeah. so you know there was a famous physicist and all this that said you know if it came out that you know he essentially said you know if this all pans out and if it's you know independently confirmed I'll eat my shorts He's like, "Yeah, not going to happen." He's like, "You know, I'll be my or I'll sit, eat my socks on television or some some article of clothing." He's yuck. like, "I'll eat it on television." Yuck. Go ahead.
0: On your ugh, yuck. I would not want to so, do that. So yeah. he he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to worry about. No,
1: nope, he doesn't have to. It was one of those things that he was so so sure right that, you know, this data must not be correct. Right. right. Now we we came back and there was you know confirmation and there was some radiation detected and then there was questions about that it's gone back and forth and they you know they did kind of decide that it was this cable but you know the the final nail in the straw nail in the coffin is always independent confirmations from various teams and sources and various locations Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you no matter whether it's positive or negative you know you're ruling it out you have to wait until. You know, all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. So, two teams over at this location say, you know, say one thing, and, you know, multiple teams at the same location. So, it's all about repeating the data and making sure that everything says the same thing to confirm or deny any original, you know, whatever the original data said and whatever the claims are saying.
0: Yeah. Well, Heather, I do declare that if we're not about to do the spacecraft update, I'll eat my shorts. Woo! Boy, good thing the Cybyte computer agreed with me. It is time for the spacecraft update. What's going on out there?
1: So much going on. Oh, so the shuttle Enterprise has made its last landing. You know, it's on the Intrepid uh, mm-hmm. Museum in New York. Now, you know, it's traveling up the the river, and the weather wasn't cooperating too much. So, it had a sudden microburst of wind, about thirty five knots kind of pushed the oh. barge that it was sitting on, kind of rubbed a panel of the protective layer of the wing tip off.
0: Oh.
1: So just a little bit of damage there when, when the bumpers hit the water, sort of designed to to bumper vessels as they go down. But it's, it, like, fixed it. It's up on the ship now. One interesting thing that I saw is the crane that was used to lift it and place it on the ship was the same one that was used to lift the Pan Am, um,
0: oh, out of the out of the river. Yeah,
1: the river out of the river. Yeah, the you know
0: so when
1: that, they landed on the river. That's quite the
0: process they took to get that thing home.
1: Oh my goodness, yes. So they had to fly it in, you know, you know it made the the rounds around the city. I've seen people say, oh my gosh, yes, I saw it. So they did that. Then they had to put it on a barge, and it had to go down the river to get to here. Then they had to lift it up on a crane to put it on the do- on the you know, on the deck of this, of the ship. Now, they also had to go through and make sure that the ship, the decking on the ship was reinforced properly to the weight of the, you know, of the Enterprise on these specific wheels in the specific locations. So They had to make some adjustments there. They had to make, you know, move all these different pieces. You know, it's sad to see these go. It's good to see them being tangible so that maybe they can inspire. But just the process... Of playing, you know, of playing out this deck of cards, saying, "Okay, you go here." Yeah, it's it's you know, it's a little com- more complicated than you might think.
0: It must have taken but, quite a quite a bit of bureaucratic work to get that whole thing charted out to get that thing where from oh point
1: A yes. to point B. Now, like I said, the the tiny little wing tip being damaged, I was like, "Oh no!" But they they've got it fixed and. It, it, they've got it patched up now.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's good. And that was the Enterprise, too. That never even uh, went up into space.
1: Nope. That was the one that used to be the Smithsonian. Yeah. That was loaded on top of a couple of uh, big Boeings. So
0: that's that was uh, some of the roughest duty it's seen.
1: <laughs> well, not quite. This was the shuttle that...
0: It got up on it, the back of a 747, right?
1: Well, they released it, and they used it for the gliding down. Yeah, it yeah. It never had actual engines, but they used it to kind of make sure that... The shuttles could come in for a landing like they was that were right. supposed to, right. And when uh, after the Columbia accident, they were actually took big foam pieces and fired them at the at the enterprise's wings to see if they could replicate what might have happened. Hmm. So it was kind of used as a you know as a testing ground of what was going on and kind of the start of everything
0: right. The prototype,
1: yep, you know, started off with a different name, and then the people rose and said, Enterprise, please.
0: Uh-huh. Must be the
1: Enterprise.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, why don't we talk about uh, the dragon?
1: Yes. How long can I talk about this? And how long can I stay about excited about this? Forever. Forever. But yeah. is actually news. It's arrived back in the port of Los Angeles on June 5th. It's now headed to. It was headed to McGregor, Texas, for all its unloading. You know, filled with you know 14 you know, 1400 pounds of old equipment. So. It's back on land. You know they're bringing it back to their home station, and then they'll go through it all and you know get it all out to where it needs to go. Right now there on. was some of the you know some of it came out quickly. They had specific cargo that was to be sent back to NASA, expedited. Now, so they essentially got it back in, they opened it up, got specific items out and sent it on to NASA quickly.
0: Hmm.
1: And then the rest of it kind of is, you know, trucking it on across the across the U.S. to where it needs to go.
0: So they passed, hopefully. They passed NASA's test, and now the contract will begin.
1: Yep, and so starting in September, hopefully we'll see this happening more often. Awesome, awesome. Very, very awesome.
0: All right. Okay, now, but we're not done with the spacecraft, right?
1: Oh, no. The NASA Aquarius mission, yeah. this is measuring ocean salinity. Now, what I found, one of the reasons I it just passed its one-year mark huh. Measuring changes in the salinity or salt concentration in the surface of the oceans. Mm-hmm. Now, what triggered me onto this is one of the past SciBite uh, viewer questions sent in. Right. The video question from the young class said, "How is the ser- is the ocean salinity uh, the salt of the ocean the same everywhere?"
0: That was a great question.
1: Yes, and that's where I brought it up and said, "No, this is how it changes," and this is the data. This is the satellite that brought me. You know that provided the data for saying, no, these are the different levels of how the salt concentrations are across the oceans. Awesome. So it's just passed. It's a, It's now one-year-old. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. And uh,
0: they have that cool uh, diagram up on, yes. that, on that post. Yep. So if you want to find that, links in the show notes to that, you can check that out. All right, why don't we talk a little Mars rover?
1: Yes. I am t- speaking as a totally unbiased person that Mars is awesome. Um <laughs> totally unbiased opinion on this Right. the Curiosity rover it's the next uh, the next rover coming up scheduled to launch uh, land on August 5th very excited about this counting down the days now it's they had a conference a meeting that said alright now we've narrowed down where the landing is going to be they actually made it a, they were so spot on like on target that they kind of gave themselves a little bit tougher place to land wow really Yeah, it's. They're like we're ready for the challenge. We can take it. Yeah, we're okay. We can do it. So their their ultimate goal is this specific mountain, and so they they try to make it where they're going to land a little bit closer to where they want to go.
0: Oh, so less less actual like driving to have to do.
1: Yeah, a little bit a little bit closer to where they want to go. It's a little more rough terrain. Yeah. You know, different elevation, different kind of just slightly different kind of terrain going on, but they. They're right on targets. I think you know what this, this is going to go fine. We're we're right on. It's it's good to land in this location. So it's a little bit tougher, but I'm excited to see it land there.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs>
1: just in case anyone wonders, might be mentioned inside bite.
0: Yeah, that might that might come up.
1: Yeah, just maybe.
0: That is a possibility. All right. Well, I think we're all done talking about spacecrafts. Heather, why don't you step over so? here in the time machine? And okay. we'll, uh, all right. Here okay, we go. Here we go. Oh, oh, watch out! Close the, been- the door. Oh boom! Oh, oh! Sorry, sorry. That was my it's elbow. Great. I apologize. It's okay. All right, my ribs so uh, survive. you know when we go far back, when you, the further back you go, I swear the bumpier it gets. Our our mm. uh, first destination is four hundred and one years ago, June thirteenth, sixteen eleven.
1: Yes, the first publication of some new phenomenon, sunspots.
0: Mm, sounds like a monster.
1: Yes, <laughs> so those the. The first publication of these, somebody was using a technique similar to how uh, various people watching the Venus transit,
0: you know, last week. Oh, yeah. Or the reflection was, you know. on, like, a something.
1: Yeah. So, they so they spotted on there. They think they actually started, you know, looking through the telescope at it, and they said it was kind of painful. Good idea. So, then they switched to projection methods.
0: Ah. So they Uh, went blind a few times, then realized.
1: Then they almost went blind a few times because you never, ever look at the sun, especially through binoculars or a telescope or anything like that. And they didn't pay attention to that because they hadn't made the rule yet. But then they finally learned, shining on a piece of paper. And they saw these big, you know, black splotches on the sun. And it was the first time that the phenomenon was published.
0: Wow. Wow. 401 years ago. All right. Okay. Uh, Are any more on that or should I go to the next one? Go ahead. The next one is two hundred and sixty years ago, june fifteenth, seventeen fifty two.
1: Possibly one of the most famous science experiments. Lightning and kites uh, oh. and Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. Yep. He published his third person account as a you know, a kite experiment. Now, it it's not quite as we picture it. He admitted you know, at first he just mentioned it that he had, you know, witnessed it, that somebody else was going on. And then much later he admitted that he he actually performed the experiment himself. Now he was, and when it comes down to it, he's actually insulated from the kite. So he wasn't actually holding the string, the wet string when the lightning struck. Okay. Because that does slightly more than when the cartoon, you know, little hair goes out and fried and you get a little dust on your face. Yeah, Yeah, it's, it's a little more serious than that. Yeah. In fact, after he published it, some other people tried to repeat the process and were electrocuted.
0: So (laughs) he had to
1: kind of republish and go, okay, um, this is how you actually do it the safe way. So he
0: wasn't very specific the first time through.
1: No, and he didn't... This wasn't um, finding the invention of electricity. It was just saying, lightning is made of electricity. Mm. So that's what he was doing, is he was proving that lightning was made of electricity, and he was making sure that he was perfectly insulated from this. And this type of a, this type of a process and ended up leading to the invention of the lightning rod.
0: Right. Like I I would think so.
1: Yep. uh, So the kite experiment was in June. The lightning rod happened in September. So it was kind of a a process. He's like, okay, this is electricity. Now we need to make sure that we can, you know, kind of redirect it around our houses. This is how to do it.
0: There you go. You know, um, The idea that 260 years ago we just figured out that lightning was made of electricity, and now growing up, you know, little you learn that as very young, it's just common knowledge, just something you just completely take for granted. All right, Heather, well, let me retune here and uh, plug this guy in so that way we can look up into the sky this week.
1: That's right. On Wednesday, June the 13th, Mercury is going to start to become uh, more easily visible after sunset. You can see it low in the west, northwest in the fading twilight. One of the ones that's a little more difficult to see, but on Sunday, uh, starting around the fifteenth to the seventeenth, Venus and Jupiter are starting to emerge from the east northeast skies about forty five minutes before sunrise. So we had the Venus transit. Now it's kind of passing. It's starting it to appear before, right before sunrise. Hmm. Jupiter's going to be over there too. Jupiter is the higher. It's higher to the right of Venus. So Jupiter, the you know awesome planet, is still. On top, it's awesome, higher.
0: Awesome, awesome.
1: And the moon is going to be progressively getting closer to the two. So as you know, as the days progress, um, <clears> by Sunday <throat> it'll lie just below and to the left of Jupiter at sunrise. Hmm. So in that area, you have Jupiter, the moon, and Venus.
0: That's going to be a hell of a sky. Just,
1: yep, just before sunrise, those Venus and Jupiter will see pair up, paired up a lot, and Jupiter is the higher of the two. So look out. Uh, about 45 minutes before sunrise, and you can see them.
0: Right on, Heather. Cool. Well, I believe that brings us to the end of today's show. I think show. so. Well, okay. I got a little signs for all of you people out there. Cybite is released every single Tuesday over, or actually it's live every single Tuesday. It's released on Wednesdays. Yes. Actually, depends if you're Pacific. It actually comes out on Tuesdays too, but you know, yeah. I don't really say that very often. But. All right, Heather. Well, thanks for a great show. Awesome. And uh, I want to encourage everyone to tune in over JB jblive.tv Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. Pacific. Or download it Wednesday mornings and check out the show notes for all of Heather's links. Alright everyone. Well thanks so much for tuning to this week's episode of Sidebite. See you right back here next week.